You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same Welcome to episode 298 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer. I live in Sandy Springs, Georgia. Also joining me is Nathan Gilmore, who is a professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How's it going, Nathan? Oh, going pretty well. Uh, video conference teaching is still wearing me out, but uh, I am going to make it. I, I can imagine, having never done that, I can imagine how it would actually be more tiresome than uh, than teaching in person. Far more tiring. Far more tiring. Uh, also joining us is someone who is in person, I think, mostly for his classes, David Grubbs, who is an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. Hello, hello. They do, they do in fact, witness my person in in the classroom, uh, though, though not all of them. Most classes, it's about... 25% of enrollment that's there. Grubbs, you must be coming up for tenure soon. We don't have tenure at HBU. Then why am I calling you an assistant professor? Because we do have ranks, okay. and those ranks do have distinctions in terms of uh, kind of raise scale and and responsibilities and some other things. Well, you must be um, coming up on an ascension to a higher rank soon. Yeah, I could have um, I could have done that uh, this year actually, but putting together the um, the the portfolio that that involves this fall seemed let, let, let's just say that you know I I it 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 you know just sort of gives me an ulcer a stomach ulcer thinking about it so <laughs> I can imagine I um you know I applied for my um to be an associate professor, even though I knew I wasn't going to be returning to the school I taught at. So I, uh, I was very honest in the comments and apparently there was actually some discussion about whether I would have passed it or not. So that's, uh, it's good to know. It, it really feeds that part of me that thrives on knowing people hate me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think anybody, I don't, I, 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 I don't think that I would be necessarily, that my pitch would not necessarily be couched in those same terms. It was a lot of so, culture yeah. war questions, to be fair. It asked me my opinion on evolution. Anyway, as, as interesting as all this is to our listeners, I'm sure they would rather us get to the point. Maybe, <laughs> have we done an episode on tenure? It seems like we might have, come to think of it. I think City of Man did an episode on tenure. That's right. That's right. I consider I consider anything anybody does on any of our shows to be primarily my work. <laughs> of my work uh what else is going on in the network this week we have a new uh before they were live episode on hunchback of notre dame actually my work <laughs> yes uh when this drops we will also have a an episode of the christian feminist podcast on mental health and covid19 uh and we have a city of man episode on hat country 
And I have no idea what those two words mean in that order, Michael. Yeah, in the 90s, uh, a bunch of very popular male country singers wore cowboy hats, and hat act was a, a kind of semi-derogatory way to refer to them. There you go. So it's not a place. Huh? Like bat country? Hat country. Yeah, oh, hat country. Oh, the, the, country of, the country of, of hats. It sounds like a All wonderful right. place, but no, it's a, it's a group of people. All right. Well, our uh, topic today is someone who probably wore a hat just because of when he lived. We're going to be talking about the German uh, social critic, Marxist theorist, Walter Benjamin, and in particular, his essay, Unpacking My Library. We'll have a link so you can read that online if you don't have his book, Illuminations, which is where it shows up in English translation usually, but it is available online. So we'll link that on the show notes at christianhumanist.org. Um. I won't. We won't spend a whole lot of time talking about who Benjamin is. Maybe, maybe later we'll do an episode on Benjamin himself, uh, and and we can go through that. But for now, let's stick with the uh, with the essay itself, which, as as the title suggests, is him unpacking his library. Uh, it's it's a pretty straightforward title. I am the one who has unpacked his library most recently, and, and in fact, I, I thought of this episode while I was unpacking it, saw Illuminations and said, hey, I should read that Walter Benjamin essay, and I did. Um, but we all unpacked our libraries at various points in our lives, so I wonder if the way he talks about unloading his books rings true to your experiences. As I was preparing for this, Michael, I realized that I really haven't packed my library up for any longer than an eight-hour layover, if you will, since about 2002, um, when I moved from the University of Georgia over to Emmanuel College in 2009, I really did load up about three shelves worth of books. Of course, we had office mates back then, uh, and drove over to Emmanuel College and loaded them onto the shelves there. So uh, this is actually, I, I, I never thought about this being an alien experience, but now I know that it is. Now, in 2002, I did move from Tennessee to Georgia, so my my books were in boxes. I actually practiced saying that before the episode and still failed. Um, And so they were in boxes for a couple weeks at that point. But at that, you know, stage in my life, all of the books that I owned, I had acquired really over the previous five years. Uh, So again, I mean, this is an interesting essay, not because uh, it rings so true with me, Uh, But precisely because it doesn't, I realize you two have moved your libraries, you know, across country. Uh, I've pretty much moved mine down the hall over the last 11 years, give or take. So Grubbs, uh, say something more interesting than I just did. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, in that uh, roughly the same time span, uh, I've had jobs at two different institutions so that involved moving my office books uh, at least um, uh, packing all of that up and moving it um, significant distances um, and then the discrepancy between uh, the shelving frankly in my first office and my second office meant that I had to make very different decisions um, about what get, what is a home book and what is an office book. And then, uh, since even since we've been in Houston, uh, we have 
we are we've lived in two different places, and so packing up the home books and moving them and seeing okay which things do we unpack, what things go in what rooms, um, that has also uh, that has also changed, and I still have um, I still have books and boxes uh, that that don't have currently a home in either uh, my home shelves or my office shelves. I just haven't got enough bookshelves for all the books I own. Um, with the result that I periodically will kind of, you know, go, go into the, pull it out from under the bed or in that stack in the garage or wherever um, it happens to be and kind of flip through it and remember, oh yeah, I own that. Um, so yeah, and, and the, the, the very tactile, um, job there, you can't, there, there's no, there's no way of, of unpacking a library and moving it from box to shelf or shelf to box. You have to do it one book at a time. Like you have to hold the book. Each book requires different you know, different treatments. Some are in better condition than others. Some you care about more than others. So it's this, uh, it is a necessarily individual, personal, and even delicate experience book by book. Um, that's one of the things I liked about this essay. Um, if I, I don't know, dear listener, what you expect when Michael says, we're going to be reading this essay by you know, German social critic, Marxist, <laughs> et cetera, yeah. et cetera. But this is a, this is, this is not some kind of, uh, terminology dense, con- high concept, critical theory, whatever, like whatever you expect that sort of thing to be based on last week's episode. This, es- this, this essay isn't it. It's very chatty. It's very, kind of warm and and I could hang out with I could hang out with the Walter Benjamin of this essay. And yeah, and his the degree to which he's a Marxist is kind of debatable. Uh he he certainly used Marxist terminology. I think he considered himself a Marxist at various points, but the other members of the Frankfurt School often did not consider him a very good Marxist. So I I don't think there's anything or very little at least in this essay that would mark him as a Marxist. I guess I'm the one who's who's had the the biggest kind of Benjaminian unpacking my library experience, which is to say that I actually packed two libraries into boxes, and I, I packed them into the same boxes because I took our books that we had at home in Minnesota and our books that I had in my office at school in Minnesota, and I put them all together. I alphabetized them in, on our living room floor, and then I put them in boxes alphabetically, and then I put them into a pod for more than a year, and uh, I just recently have gotten most of them out. I'm still not done because I have another bookcase to assemble uh, for the last couple boxes. Uh, so so I, I've, I've had this kind of weird experience of forgetting that I had books. Uh, you know, I would, I would pull books out of these boxes that I did not remember having. Sometimes I would, you know, I'd say, didn't I get rid of this? And sometimes I'd forgotten I had it all together and it was kind of a pleasant surprise to see it. I had the weird experience of writing the entire first draft of my Gabriel Marcel book without having any books other than my Gabriel Marcel books and a couple 
couple others. So I actually need to go back through and add page numbers for all these quotes that I found on the internet that I actually do have the books for. It, it, I, I've just, I've, I've spent the last year thinking um, for a very long time about the, the kind of physical presence that a library takes up in your house and, and the kind of joys and sorrows of that physical presence. And I must say, I'm glad to have them back and to be surrounded by them once again. Central to this essay, and, and to some extent to Benjamin's thought as a whole, is the notion of the collector. Uh, Nathan, what sets the collector apart from other people who might have a lot of books lying around? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this part uh, was amusing to me because my students probably think that I am a book collector simply because I have lots of shelf feet of books that I keep around my office. Uh, but I am not a collector in the way that this this essay describes the collector, as Benjamin lays it out, is someone who, is, who has a knowledge that comes not only from the author of the book, that's where my story tends to end, uh, but also is concerned with the printer and the binder and the previous owners, the history of acquisition. Uh, it, it's a lot of concern with, you know, is this a rare edition of the book? Is this one that was a limited run? Is this you know, a lot of things that, uh, you know, when I hear other people talk about with great enthusiasm, I'm glad that, you know, they have that in their life. But uh, it, it's not something I really spend any time thinking about when I deal with my own books. Uh, so, I mean, it is, a, it is a focus on the material history, really, of each volume that marks the collector for Benjamin. Um, David, I mean, is there, is there anything else that sets the collector apart from the mere plebeian reader? Um, th this is probably something that we're going to be getting into uh, later on, but the, the idea, that just to kind of flesh out what you said about um, the addition and, and provenance and so forth, uh, is, is just that each, each book is... Um, sort of an individual with its own story with the collection of the book as the climax of the story. Right. Right. Um, I, I thought that was, I thought that was really, um, really insightful for thinking about how I feel about some of my books. Were any of your books owned by somebody notable before you? That's either. Yeah. Of yeah. I have, um, I have a copy of English literature in the 16th century, excluding drama <laughs> by C.S. Lewis that was awarded um, to H.D. Rack uh, for passing some kind of uh, theology exam at Cambridge in 1958. Um, and uh, at some point in his career, I guess H.D. Rack, um, you know, hit a lean spot and sold some of his books. But later on, uh, he he went on to be one of the um, major scholars of and historians of Wesleyanism in the United Kingdom, and actually has a chair named for him and a library that. Uh, that is his books. Huh. Well, um, his books minus one. Well, yeah, they asked for it. Um, I'm not sure whether I want to give it to him yet. Oh, 
Don't give it to them, David. Ask them to pay for it. <laughs> well, I, th- yeah. But, th- you know, I, I, I'm like, that. that's also, I'm also, like, super happy to have a first edition of C.S. Lewis's mm. Oh Hell. <laughs> yeah, well, you should, you should see if they'll trade you another first edition, one that's not as valuable to them. <laughs> first for first. Yeah. Um... So that, that's that's the only one that I really know of. Uh, I mean, may, maybe some of my books were known were owned by somebody famous at some point in the past, but that that's really the only one that uh, I saw that name and I wondered, okay, what did this guy go on to do? And I, you know, did some did some dig, some digging, some googling, and uh, was able to find out a little bit of a little bit of that story. It was kind of cool. How about you, Nathan? Any any, uh, any famous books? No, I mean about the closest thing that I have to that, and it's really not. It's analogous more than it is close. Is that you know when I do uh, attend events where you know favorite authors of mine are present, I try to bring along my favorite book of hers or his to get it signed. So I've got maybe a dozen or fifteen, you know, books signed by some of my favorite authors. So it hurts my feelings that you've never asked me to sign my book. Have we been Nathan? in the same state? <laughs> <laughs> I guess I now we are, but for you anyway. we're, we're kind of, we're, we're kind of, we're my, kind of separated by COVID. My mother, my mother asked me to sign my book and I've never been so embarrassed in my whole life. It's humiliating. Uh, <laughs> thanks mom. <laughs> what's the, uh, what's the oldest book you guys own? Oh goodness. Oh. Grubs, you probably have more immediate knowledge of this. I got to think about it. Um, 19th century um okay. i've got wow. um i've got a few a few books that are 19th century um most of my older books are from the the first quarter of the 20th century mm-hmm. um but i do have i do have a, a couple of 19th century um editions which is you know that that's that's pretty cool that's pretty fun um, I have a Bullfinch's Age of Fable and Mythology from 1898. Um, that's that's kind of it's kind of nice. Yeah, well, yeah. I don't have anything that old. No, I, I don't have anything um, that old either. Uh, oh golly, let's see. How old is the? How old are you, book? 1874. Oh my God. Our, our inheritance in the Great Pyramid by Piazzi Smith. See, what's interesting about a book like that is it's probably not available anyway except in very old editions. So except for collectors right. and kind of collector-adjacent people like you, David, because I think you probably yeah. have that streak more than Nathan and I do, that those books would be totally forgotten. And, and so there's a, there's a sense in which holding on to them, you're preserving them, even if you never do anything with them. Yeah. Hmm. Yes. that's how i feel about my old books i have gabriel marcel's plays in french because most of them have never been translated into english and i have the editions mostly from the 1930s and 40s and the cool thing about that is they're the only books i own that i had to use a paper knife to open huh i mean i don't have a paper knife so i used like a a half of a pair of scissors but you know they were folded and closed the way books 
used to be. And I think they were that way longer in France than they were in the United States. There's that reference in um, Existentialism as a Humanism to a paper knife. Uh, and and I, I guess in 1945, when that uh, when that essay came out, you still had to use a paper knife to open books. And I know that because I've had to open a few books that way. But that's pretty cool. The only problem is those books are so fragile that you almost can't do anything with them. Right. Yeah. Is the is the is it that that a uh, post Great War terrible terrible paper quality? I, I can't tell if it's terrible paper or if it's just old paper. You know what I mean? Yeah. Not not having any other books of that vintage, I can't tell if these are particularly poorly made. But they are paperbacks, so um, they're they're not holding together terribly yeah. well. I mean, the comparable. Th- I, I I don't think you necessarily see the same thing in books from the U.S. in that period, but books from the mm, well obviously the middle uh, sort of the first half of the 40s but even even on into the early 50s paper quality in american uh less expensive books is just awful Hmm. um they're just they're just brittle and crumbly and they fall apart which is heartbreaking if you really like to collect um old popular fiction oh sure because yeah nobody was thinking oh somebody 70 years from now is going to want to own this yeah, exactly, and and it's like it's like trying to read a potato chip. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a little bit of that. Yeah. Well, that was an unscheduled question, but I uh, I just I just started thinking about that while we were talking. Uh, let's talk about the acquisition of books because Benjamin is very very interested in that. Uh, how do you guys prefer to get your books, and how have the eight decades between Benjamin's book buying experiences and ours? change the way the collector and the non-collector approach these things i mean i wasn't always a was i always a collector my first exposure to books was in the form of series fiction uh-huh right? series so, not serious not serious but series right yeah like the first book that i remember reading uh was a bobsy twin mystery and very soon thereafter discovered Hardy Boys and Encyclopedia Brown and, you know, all of those kinds of, you know, the, those, the venerable sort of uniform editions. Yes. And so collecting, wa- wanting, um, wanting to get the whole set and wanting the set to match is something that I don't think I even had to be taught. Yeah. It, it, yeah. it, 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 it just seemed to be part of the game. Um, right off the bat and you know i never did have a complete collection of bobsy twin or hardy boys or encyclopedia brown i had a lot of them i was always very frustrated by how different the encyclopedia brown printings looked um i really wanted them to be more like hardy boys with a nice standard format (laughs) Uh those blue those blue hardcover hardy boys books yes so um I remember mall bookstores when I was much younger, like Walden Books, places like that. Um, going into them, just sort of browsing the shelves. Uh, that that would be uh, libraries and the library sale shelves. Oh man, library sales! You never know what you're going to get at one of those. Oh, uh, they're so wonderful. Um, university library sales are awesome. 
uh, because you know they're not just sort of retiring old books. They're also offloading things that were doned, donated, um, often like really valuable stuff. Uh, I picked up some some copies of uh, the Anglo-Saxon, the 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 hardbound Anglo-Saxon poetic, uh, poetic record um, <laughs> at a library book sale. Well, I think we've all looked for a copy of that. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. Um, so, but uh, what an interesting I mean, like, cluster of interests you have, David, <laughs> from the Hardy Boys to the Anglo-Saxon Poetic Chronicle. I mean, I am basically an interesting, uh, a fascinating cluster of interests. You know, <laughs> that's, that's true. That's that's my thing. I'm a boring uh, cluster of interests, so I, I respect yeah. it. But then the bit the big bookstores came in. I remember the first Books a Million. Uh huh. That I went to and going in and being like, wow, this is enormous. Um, the the first Barnes and Noble that I went in, and there's coffee. Um, <laughs> uh, then eBay. Oh man, eBay was eBay was my first experience buying a book online. Um, I look back at myself as a I don't know older teenager, younger twenty something, getting things on eBay, thinking, what were you thinking? It's like you know, wandering into some kind of wild west, um, you know, or some, you know, dank underworld hole of grifters. <laughs> Our listeners who did not live before eBay really can't appreciate how much that changed the process of collecting anything. And in my case, it's mostly music. Oh, yeah. Because there were uh, tapes and CDs that I would go to family Christian bargain bins all over this fair land looking for and never find them. Uh, but you could just go on eBay, type in the name, and there'd be 50 of them. And and that really changed, I think, our relationship to things like that because now everything was available. Everything was yeah. Available. Not just everything is available, but things that it would have never occurred to you to... I'm going to collect that. Right. I remember at one point my friend found a bag of human feces on eBay. Uh, don't, don't collect that. No, I don't know why you would do that. Yeah, well, how, how would that end up on one search results? I, I really sure don't want to know that. But I'm, I'm sure he, he Googled poop or something like that. And I, how'd you get it in the bag? <laughs> I don't want to know, and I never asked the guy who, uh, who, who, who offered that for sale. <laughs> so then Amazon came along. I, initially, I thought of Amazon as kind of cheating, um, but later on, the convenience of it wooed me, um, and a lot of my current book buying, especially if it's just utilitarian, I need this book for this project, um, will typically be through. Um, Amazon, um, but for books that I want to have, and and, and I guess that, I think that's a distinction that Walter Benjamin's essay is is helping us to excavate. A book that I want to have, I'll typically not go to Amazon, but go to if I'm not going to a physical store, I'll go to something like ABE Books. Uh huh. Or Biblio.com. Um, yes, um, one of those uh, one of those sites that's actually kind of a uh, a conglomerate of a bunch of used bookstores all over the place. Yeah, it's it's like a, a swap meet almost. Yes. 
and you know I've I've used those I've used those for for a lot of things, but I'll still um, anytime we go into an antique store, um, I'm looking for bookshelves, a flea market, I'm looking for bookshelves, thrift stores. Yeah, Goodwill has all sorts of stuff you'll you you won't expect. Estate sales. Oh are yeah. Great. Um. So I, I, you know, the the fact that I can find things conveniently and quickly, um, hasn't robbed the joy of finding things serendipitously. In fact, I have a collection uh, of a series that I'm build that, that I've been building up over the years that I refuse to I refuse to look the look up volumes in the series online. Um, I it's it's a collection that I I've, I've just sort of said the way that I will play this game is. I have to find it in real life. What is the series? <sighs> oh, lordy. The Rick Brandt Electronic Adventures. And if our if our listeners find entries in this series and send them to you at HBU, will you accept them? I mean, I would you know, I wouldn't be mad. Yeah, I, 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 I would I would probably I would probably be pleased and flattered by that. Um they're kind of like Johnny Quest. Sure. Except, you know, from the 50s, um, there's a book from this series that I read when I was, I don't know, I was probably like 11. And for and it was at my grandmother's house, but then the next time I looked for it, I couldn't find it. And then after she passed away and, and, and you know, we were kind of working through her books, it wasn't there. And so for years, I just thought I'd made it up. And then I saw it one day in an antique store and was like, that's oh, it's real. <laughs> it was real the whole time. It was real. So that, so that set me off on my own, uh, my own mission to kind of find that book and the rest of the series, but, but in real life, not just order them. I could do that. Yeah. But there's no, but, there's no thrill in that. It's, no. it's the, the joy of not thinking you're going to find it. And then finding it, I, I get that in, entirely. Yeah, yeah. Nathan, how about how about you? How do you like to get your books? Well, first of all, I want to refer back to the essay. I mean, there is a long scene in which he goes to an auction to buy books. A little different. And man, I I never had the thought of going to an auction to buy a book, and I, I doubt that I ever will go to an auction and buy a book. Uh, Although in the in the era of eBay that Grubbs is talking about, that is an auction. Uh, I've never bid. I've never bid on a book. Now, m- most of yeah. the eBay purchases I make are the buy it now, so it's more like a flea market than like an auction. Yeah, but in the early days of eBay, I don't know that most play- most sellers yes. used to buy it now. It really was like you would have to go in at the last minute. I ordered a lot of music posters from eBay, and you would have to go in at the last minute or else you wouldn't get it. But yeah, you're right. I mean, auctions are not really something we do for books anymore, unless they really are first editions. Well, and I mean, I, I do on occasion, you know, catch a news story about, you know, someone purchased a painting for this many hundreds of thousands of dollars on an auction. So I imagine people still sell books at auctions. I just never would do it myself. Um, you know, my history, I mean, you know, like like David's, I mean, started with uh, Walden Books in the mall. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I hit my first uh, Books a Million in my freshman year of college in 1995, and I really thought I'd hit Shangri-La. Mm-hmm. Um, and also in Johnson city, Tennessee, there were just two just astoundingly good used bookstores. 
Uh, one of them is Mr. K's, which I know uh, the network's Jordan Poss still goes to the one in uh, somewhere in the Carolinas. I forget which one he hits. Uh, but it was just amazing. And then there was one whose name I have forgotten, and the last time I was in Johnson City, it had actually been demolished, which makes me sad. But it was just a, uh, an, an, an old guy who collected books and ran this used bookstore to pay the bills. And it's, it's the one, listeners, if you listen to Sectarian Review, I, I talked once about a shelf of books in this used bookstore where he arranged chronologically books that predicted what year the world would end, starting in about 1988 and going up to about the current year. Oh, that is amazing. It really was. Is, and I, wow. If, if I hadn't been a broke college student, I probably would have constructed my own such shelf because, I mean, it... it I mean, without speaking a word, it was a statement about, uh, you know, certain kinds of uh, Bible reading. Uh, these days, if I know what title I want, I, I usually hit an online used bookseller, and I consider Amazon just one one among the others. I, I don't have any, uh, you know, particular animus towards, you know, third-party sellers on Amazon because they're probably also selling their books on Abe Books and, you know... Better World Books, and half a dozen others as well. Um, I am an early enough uh, Amazon customer that when I see an Amazon box at somebody's house, my first thought is, oh, I wonder what book they got. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But, I mean, when I, you know, the used bookstores that I used to frequent here in Athens have gone under, so honestly, when I want to kind of browse used books, I either go down to Goodwill or I hit uh, betterworldbooks.com. Uh, and just kind of pick a subject and browse their collection. Uh, usually when they have a coupon, which they email to me, and, you know, I'll pick up three or four used books for 10 bucks that way. So, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I at, at this point, I have a an office the size of a small classroom, and I am out of shelf space, so I'm, I'm at the point in my uh, book accumulating career. I won't call myself a collector now that I've read this essay. But my uh, book accumulation has gotten to the point where I have to get rid of books before I can get new books. Oh, Lord. I'm so sorry, Nathan. <laughs> One of the way, the means of acquisition that he talks about, though, is... is borrowing uh, and not giving them back. Yeah, <laughs> and I am, uh, even as we speak, I am looking at two books that were lent to me possibly more than a year ago that I have not returned. Have they found their way onto your shelves yet? No, they're not on my shelf. Um, also, I haven't read them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but when you borrow a book, you're never going to read it. I mean, that just never happens. Uh, there was there was an, an older lady at the church that I grew up at who found out that I loved mysteries and we had a, my, my parents went to a Bible study at her house and I would sometimes tag along with them and kind of, you know, do some, you know, kind of draw in the kitchen or whatever. Anyway, she would let me go into her. She had a closet off of her bedroom with her mysteries. She would let me borrow her mysteries. So, those books I did read and I did return because I thought of them as like it was like a library 
The best used bookstore I've ever been to was the Antiquarium, which was a uh, a very large building in in the old market in Omaha. It was three stories, and the, the basement was records. And they always had a great record selection, too. Um, and then the, the ground floor and the first floor were both um, full of books. And, and the thing about the Antiquarium is the guy who owned it had all these buddies who would seem to live there and they would constantly be sitting there on the ground floor smoking cigarettes and and shooting the breeze for hours and hours and hours so every book in that place smelled like tobacco and it was the greatest thing in the world and uh, unfortunately that guy moved and took the antiquarium with them and i don't even know where he went uh, that is my favorite used bookstore and no other one has ever been able to live up to it. The other one I liked in Omaha. Did we take you there, David, when we, we met in Omaha, Jackson Street Books? Yeah, we went to one in Omaha. Yeah, that's Jackson Street. That's a terrific bookstore. I, yeah, I got um, Ivan T. Sanderson's Abominable Snowman Legend Come to Life. Uh, a, a, a grubs purchase. With the jacket cover. Anyway. I am also kind of shamefully fond of half price books, which is, you know, a chain used bookstore, but man, I love it. And there's one 15 minutes from here and I like to go there. We, we have some good ones in, in Houston. There's a really good one downtown that's next to the rice campus. And it's a good one because it's next to the rice. Yeah. Campus. The ones next to campuses. There's, there's, there's one in dinky town, Minneapolis. That's right next to the university of Minnesota and it's a basement. And it, it that's a great bookstore too. I can't remember the name of it. They have a very large theology section. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Nathan, what's the one there, you liked in Athens? It's closed. Tell me, it's not the Jackson Street Books in Athens. No, it was. A, it was also a chain. Uh, it was oh, okay. uh, Second and Charles. I don't think yeah. I ever went there. Jackson Street in Athens was my bookstore there too. Yeah, it closed. <sighs> yeah, I, I knew that it had closed, but I mean, honestly, just because I mean, I had to drive into Athens and find parking. I very seldom went in there. Uh huh. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, and the only, um, I've been looking, but the only used bookstore in Sandy Springs is called Phoenix and Dragon, and it's like New Age books, and I'm not going in there. (laughs) (laughs) Not without a priest. You're going to uh, have to acquire a very select set of interests in order to become part of their clientele. A select and ominous set of interests. <laughs> uh, I want to return more directly to the essay itself now. Um, it's, it's long first paragraph sets up a very characteristic dialectic between order and chaos. So Benjamin says that as we enter his library, we see a bunch of boxes that will one day be arranged into a kind of order. But then later in the paragraph, he asks this rhetorical question, For what else is this collection but a disorder to which habit has accommodated itself to such an extent that it can appear as order? So what I'm wondering, David, is is what role order and disorder play in the unpacking of a library, Benjamin's or anybody else's? And what is Benjamin's library serving as a metonym for? If I'm using that word correctly, metonym and synecdoche have always been difficult for me. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm not going to. I'm not going to comment on that directly. Um, the so the 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 disorder is in the the fact that they're st- you know they're they're in they're in the boxes. Um, they can only be unboxed one by one. 
the boxes are scattered haphazardly. Um, some open, some not opened. Um, it is in this. Uh, uh, it is in this between state. It had been shelved in an order, whatever that order was, and it will be shelved in an order, whatever that order was. Um, and right now, it is physically gathered in ways that it will not be gathered when ordered. Um, and in order to, in order to, um, to create that order, each piece has to be broken off from the rest, right? Uh, one book at a time as you're sort of shifting things and relocating things and all the rest of it. Um, the way that this reflects on, uh, he talks about uh, collecting as a passion and passions, he says, every passion borders on the chaotic, um, but the collector's passion borders on the chaos of memory. Uh, more than that, the chance, the fate that suffuse the past before my eyes are conspicuously present in the accustomed confusion of these books. And so our lives are, um, our lives are chaotic. Our lives have, you know, just one darn thing after another. Um, and we, and the collector acquires books through life in this, this habitual way. Um, I mean, I, I, the, the way I talked earlier about, you know, my, my, my collection of Rick Brandt's electronic adventures. Um, I, I really have intentionally decided I'm not going to order those books. I could satisfy to the desire to own them all tomorrow, today, right? And they'd get here before the end of the week and I would have a complete set, but that's not what I want. I don't want a complete set. I want to find a complete set. Mm -hmm. Um, it would be like saying, hey, kids, we're going to go to an Easter egg hunt. And we're going to go to the store and we're going to buy Easter eggs. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the collection of books has that that sense of all of that hap ha those haphazard little moments of of excitement, of discovery of this book was given to me by this person, lent to me by this person, and I never gave it back. I inherited it. It was a present. It was, it was found lost and never returned. It was, you know, all, all of them have this, the story of, of provenance as it came into the possession of the collector. And then if you're lucky, you can find out about the stories before that, both the official story of what edition, what printing, what, you know, cover styles, interior illustrations, all that sort of thing. But also, did someone own it before you? Did they write notes in the margins? How dumb are those notes? How dumb are those notes? Or how helpful are those notes? Or how creepy are those notes? Um, you're like, why would you underline that? Uh, <laughs> I have long wanted to write a story that involved someone reading a book and gradually becoming aware of how uncomfortably strange the previous owner had been based on underlinings and annotations. Uh, you know, um, Nabokov's uh, Pale Fire kind of works that way. It's a, it's the, the plot of the novel is contained in the annotations to this, this poem, this long poem. And, and over the course of reading these annotations, you start to realize that maybe the world's not quite as clear as, uh, as the, uh, the author of the annotations wants you to think they are. That's neat. 
pretty Nabok- Nab- Nabokovian. <laughs> I, I guess would be the. Yeah, there's got to be an adjectival form. David, have you ever seen the movie High Fidelity? Mm, nope. High Fidelity is about a record collector, and he decides as part of this like campaign to understand who he is that he is going to arrange his records not by artist or date but by by autobiography so like he's gonna arrange them by the period in his life in which they were important to him and Mm. and the movie you know it does this and the movie just kind of drops it after a few minutes but i i what you're saying there reminds me of that 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 somehow these these books we own uh, tell us who we are in addition to whatever they tell us about the world and whatever the, the physical book tells us about um, the people who used to own it or people who wrote it or whatever. Yeah. And because the the books are kind of this trigger for memory, uh, they remind you of the way in which your life is this series of episodes, this series of of moments that are stitched together through your memory uh, and then are interpreted, you know, in terms of plot coherence because <laughs> we humans, we're storytelling creatures. We will turn our experiences into a story. Uh, and so that, that chaos then becomes an order uh, as each of those moments is worked into our own story. And it's it's interesting. I, I thought his his observations about a collector seeing their collection as the end of the book's story as kind of a a way of uh, a way of expressing that same idea of what we do with the chaotic moments of our own lives. Mm-hmm. Um, it you know it, it it becomes our story in the telling. And I could go I could go through this. I could go through my office right now, and I could say this 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 went with this class that I took or I, I acquired this at this place and for these reasons and this book represents a project that I never finished um, or whatever and and that would be a great way to waste the rest of my afternoon <laughs> <laughs> Nathan uh, what additional order would you add to that? Well it's interesting I've read it very differently from the way Dar- David just told the story I mean he framed it as a narrative of uh, chaotic books and then you know being ordered in the act of cataloging and then there's a sort of a trace or a specter of the chaos still remaining I, I, I took him to mean something more Nietzschean that the very act of cataloging itself uh, is basically a, a lie that We've forgotten is a lie. Uh, mm-hmm. And this might be because I teach uh, Nietzsche's brief essay on truth and lie in a non-moral sense fairly frequently. Uh, but there, there's this image, it's my favorite image in the essay. Uh, it says, you know, when you hide something in a bush and then walk over to the bush and say, ah, I've discovered it, don't therefore congratulate yourself for having found it. Right. And, and it's interesting because, <laughs> I mean, this is... Uh, you know, this reminds me of, you know, sort of ongoing debates about the order in which a library should occur, right? I mean, I know that Michael probably still does his in Library of Congress order. No, I don't. Oh, you don't? Okay. No, and listeners, if you don't know what he's talking about, we did an episode many years ago on how our books are organized, so you can go back and listen to that. 
Yeah, yeah. So uh, it, it's funny because uh, I, I have an idiosyncratic way of ordering my own office library. And uh, my friend and colleague Sarah Petrovic has actually brought up the film High Fidelity more than once looking around my office books. Well, there you go. <laughs> you, you bring in Nietzsche. I think of this essay as kind of a twin to Eliot's Wasteland, that line at the end of the Wasteland, the, these fragments I've shored against my ruins. I think Benjamin's whole project, to some extent, is shoring fragments against ruins. Let me, um, I'm going to read a quote from Hannah Arendt's essay on Benjamin. Insofar as the past has been transmitted as tradition, it possesses authority. Insofar as authority presents itself historically, it becomes tradition. Walter Benjamin knew that the break in tradition and the loss of authority which occurred in his lifetime were irreparable, and he concluded that he had to discover new ways of dealing with the past. In this, he became a master when he discovered that the transmissibility of the past had been replaced by its sightability, and then in the place of authority there had risen a strange power to settle down piecemeal in the present and to deprive it of peace of mind, the mindless peace of complacency. And I think that's what's going on with this library, that there's this, this chaos all around him, and he's going to put it into order, and yet the order he puts it into is really ultimately not that much less chaotic than it came it came to him but at least he can kind of find his way around in it i don't think the two are incompatible no no i i think that's kind of a bridge between your two positions actually um any attempts to organize something like a library is it's something like constructing a habitat in an ecosystem. Yes. Yes. All right. It it wasn't in some in some sense it isn't meant for you to live in it. <laughs> that book is its own thing. But the order that I have my books in, it reflects the way that I live with them. Right? They are where I want them to be in order for me to find them in my life. And often that's uh very very arbitrary in the same way that um where do you put the ring for the hand towel in the bathroom you know well, <laughs> you put it next somewhere. to the sink david well i know but you know next to the sink might mean different things you know um you know there's i i can't put one next to my sink because the builders put the light switch there <laughs> which means I can't drill into that wall. There's wires under it. Right, right. <laughs> you know. But it's, it's a practical uh, matter, right? Like the way your library yeah. is organized is not something that is set in stone. It has no authority. My attempt to, mm -hmm. to bolster my own library using Library of Congress numbers was an attempt to pretend that that particular order had some meaning beyond our just agreeing to use it, Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and it reminded me, Michael, of a, a professor of mine from Milligan, Chris Hurd. He's now out at uh, Pepperdine in Los Angeles. Uh, oh, good but, for him. but he would not only uh, arrange his according to Library of Congress numbers, uh, but he would affix stickers with the Library of Congress numbers to every new book he acquired. Wow. Hardcore. When I used to teach the Nietzsche essay you're talking about, I, I would always say that... Nietzsche describes human beings as homo libraricus, the, the, the kind of uh, order-making animal. Yeah, yeah. 
that, that our whole impulse is to put things into order. And for Nietzsche, and for Benjamin too, although less strongly than Nietzsche, um, that order is always a falsification. But you can't not put it in order. Otherwise, you've just got a room full of books. They're not even on the shelves. Yeah. Or you put them in order by color of books and you're a jerk and I hate you. <laughs> or you bought them because they were that color. And you, which you don't deserve worse. them and should send them to me. Uh, I, have a, I have a story about library ordering. Um, when I was uh, sort of the end of my undergraduate and then when I was working on my master's, um, I worked for uh, a small Christian nonprofit that had a research library. And I was the librarian. They didn't have an adequate catalog. They didn't have stickers or numbers. It was all this very sort of haphazard thing. And the uh, the director of the of the nonprofit was like, this 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 library is not usable. I can never I can I can't find things. Um, so at this you know at that stage of the game. He said, well, there already exists the Library of Congress. So what I want you to do is take our books and and just log them by their Library of Congress number and put labels on them and put them in that order. So I started doing that. That is my dream career. At which point he said, this is so dumb. Why did the Library of Congress put this book over here, but this other book over there? Well, that's true. Yeah, there are some there are some weirdnesses. And that was the point at which we realized the Library of Congress wasn't designed for a library that did the job that our library did. So in the end, all of the, I, I had to undo all of that work and started again trying to invent a system from scratch that was built around the logic that of the purpose we had for the books. So, so that idea that, you know, that there's no inherent necessary logical order to a library. There's no, there's no right way for the library to be ordered. What you have to do is say, you know, this is what, what do you do in your ecosystem? What do you do in your house? Build a system that works around what you do in it. You know, from, from Nietzsche to Wittgenstein. <laughs> By the way, if anybody would like to pay me to uh, organize their library, my my, I, I have this fantasy that somebody will pay me fifty thousand dollars a year for the rest of my life to like take a research library like that and talk about all the different topics that are in every book and compile some sort of master index. I would love to do that. So if there's a if somebody would like to pay me to do that, especially if they live in Atlanta, uh, hey, send us an email. There's a George McDonald novel about a guy who gets hired to do that at the library for the library of some you know like country estate. It's I, I remember almost nothing about the book except uh, reading all of those scenes with this sense of. Uh, that was my completely escapist fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I could I could make a life out of that, I think. Well, uh, toward the end of this essay, 
Uh, Benjamin tells us, quote, a collector's attitude toward his possession stems from an owner's feeling of responsibility toward his property. Thus, it is in the highest sense the attitude of an heir, and the most distinguished trait of a collection will always be its transmissibility. Uh, Nathan, what do you think of that statement? Uh, and, and to what degree is your library transmissible? I like this idea of transmissibility. I really do. Uh, and here recently, uh, and actually I, I, it was November 2019, uh, I, I learned what's going to happen to my own office library when I either retire. Well, actually, I mean, I guess it won't happen if I die. So if I retire someday, this will be what happens. Uh, and it is what uh, our American historian Claude Black did on his retirement back in November 2019. He made trips up and down the hall to the psychology, English, and history departments and basically came with, first of all, you know, in the opening weeks of this campaign, invitations to come into his office and take whatever books anyone wanted to their offices. Oh, man. And then later on, uh, as it became clear that, you know, he was going to have boxes of books left over, uh, he would start parceling them out to his colleagues based on what he remembered our conversations being. And he left notes. Talk about autobiography. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, I, uh, I came to the office one day in November and there was a stack of about eight books. And, uh, you know, there was a note on it that said, uh, I remember talking with you about uh, teaching that intro to philosophy class. I hope these help. So, I mean, that, that in my mind, is the way that a, a, a professor's library should uh, disintegrate. And, uh, you know, on my shelf, I have, uh, you know, integrated them and organized them into my own schema. But when I look at those individual volumes, those are still Claude's books. So I don't have books from anyone famous, but I sure as heck have some uh, Claude Black books. So, I yeah, mean, it's I'm interesting, this, this metaphor of property though i that one i found a little bit ill-fitting simply because a library doesn't share the i'm going to use the phrase conceptual unity of a piece of real estate so i mean even if the boundaries of a property are arbitrary and all boundaries of course are arbitrary um even our little half acre that we live on here i i know where the hills are i know where the ground rises i know where the ground falls uh, I know, you know, pretty much where every tree is. There's six fewer now than there were in June because of that crazy downburst. Um, so, I mean, there was an order to it, or at least there was a givenness to it that wasn't there with the books in my library. Does that make some sense? It it, it does, but I, I think you got to think of your library like King Lear's land. And that when you when you find yourself declining, you break it up and give it in pieces to to people. Nobody gets the whole thing because nobody wants or deserves, in some sense, the whole thing, right? Because the whole thing is an expression of who you are, and not even your children are perfect copies of you. So they're only going to want pieces of it. Yeah, but land, even when you break it up into pieces, it still retains a unity that a library doesn't. Yeah, I, well, I guess if you're talking about half an acre or whatever, but if you're talking, and that's what I'm talking about, yeah, yeah. But if you if you own thousands of acres, you know, you really could parcel that out. Yeah, I suppose you could. I suppose you could. I, I guess I'm. I just, don't even own half an acre. <laughs> I live in a townhouse. I, I guess I'm just not the freeholder that uh, that Benjamin has in mind here. <laughs> David, what do you think? 
I uh, I really love that part of it um, because much of my office library was directly inherited from a specific mentor who passed away um, in my uh, second year of PhD study and his wife uh, invited me to come to his office and um, and to collect whatever I wanted and so I have um, about four about four broad shelves of uh, mostly mostly old English but also some later medieval uh, texts that came came from his office that still have uh, index cards with his notes and his annotations in them um, so that that part of it recognizing in this very tangible way um, how I have inherited things that's that's one thing the other is that I've started I've started to intentionally require uh, acquire redundant books so that I can give them to students mm-hmm. I, d- I do that as well yeah yeah and the, and the, that I don't know if it's special to them but it's special to me because I received books from from professors um, I received inheritance in that way and uh, I don't know I see, I see myself as, as, as participating in that um, in that familial tradition when I give away books myself so I you know maybe one day you know maybe one day I'll be calling those same students up and saying hey do you want <laughs> you want a whole bookshelf <laughs> um, I don't I, I don't know I don't I don't know what I don't know what route yeah, there is one particular of, volume, David, and it, it's the Basic Writings of Nietzsche, edited and translated by Walter Kaufman. I, I own at any point anywhere between four and six copies of that, because whenever I encounter it at a used bookstore, I buy it, and my it, it always gets Mary rolling her eyes at me. She says, like, "You you have four copies of that," and I said, "Well, when I give one away, I won't." <laughs> yeah. I, it, it's it's a different kind of it's a different kind of thinking when you when you start to think in that way when you think about who can I who can I give this to um, I, I I think it's a very I, I feel like my soul is in a healthy place when I start thinking that way about things that I own um, who why do I value this? And how and who can I give this to? Who can I pass this to? Who can steward this? Um, that that feels very, I don't know, but very health bringing to me in some way. As a childless person, I'm interested that neither of you mentioned handing your books down to your kids. Uh, I mean, I think if Micah or Miriam builds a library, it'll be the library that Micah or Miriam builds. Yeah, Arden has her own books. Um, she loves her books. She has a shelf in her room that's just absolutely chock full when it's not all on the floor. 
and and we and we've curated we've curated those books. But you know, I I know that you know, <sighs> nature and nurture is a weird fickle beast. I can't guarantee that any of my offspring are going to have an interest in the specific, you know, academic quirks that scratch my itch. Um, you know, I'm not going to be like, all right, Arden, here's your ASPR. She's like, thanks, Dad. I don't know what, what is ASPR. <laughs> oh, sorry, Anglo-Saxon poetic record. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, which I inherited from Dr. Glasecki, right? So, so to me, it marked that I didn't inherit that from my father or my grandfather, right? I inherited that from my mentor and my master's degree. So that book to me doesn't mean biological family right it mean it means another kind of another kind of familial relationship you're a hair and, and an heir in all sorts of different ways yeah that yes and i i think that's it, all all of those the books are kind of also a physical reminder that if as i am an heir to steve glasecki he was an heir to whoever you know, he probably, I probably got books off of his shelves that came from his mentors and just didn't have the notes in mm -hmm. to, so, so that I know that story. Um, but in any event, he had mentors and, and that mentor had mentors and that mentor had mentors. And um, these tangible objects remind you like that, you know, like HD racks, you know, uh, Oxford History of English Language volume that I have. It reminds me that the, there is this larger world of thinkers and ideas and conversations and these books are you know they aren't like property nathan but they are like worlds and they are like little kingdoms and you know to to give someone a book that was that that was meaningful to you is like giving them a little kingdom um that can be part of part of their own world that they are constructing as they build their knowledge um, I, I don't know. I, I'm deeply sentimental about books. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, no one is yeah, surprised me, by that. Yeah, me too. I mean, it's it. I I have a hard time getting rid of anything anybody gives me because like the the things that are important to us. Marcel talks about this in one of his essays. That the the things that are important to us, the things we live with, bear our stamp. Well, I mean, sometimes literally in the, in the case of books, right? Yeah. But, but, but figuratively, they become more than just an object um, because of their close association with you. And I mean, uh, Benjamin talks about how every library accumulates things that are not books. And I, I have these little toys that various people have given me that I put on the shelf next to books that remind me of the people who gave them to me. And, you know, I, I think that's a pretty integral part of my little library here. Yeah, same. I have a, oh, a box of German flashcards that has been in that particular part of my bookshelf wherever I've had a bookshelf that had those books on it. Um, it just kind of goes with them. Um, yeah. I have a little elephant that our former intern, Amberly gave me and i put that next to uh, john barth who who she particularly likes 
uh, you know, I have my wife gave me an updike figurine that I, I showed you guys before the show started, and I put I put that next to my updike books. It's it, like there's there's something about that, right? Because it's not just about the text of the books. Because let's be honest, there's a lot of books in your collection you're never going to read. You're never even going to try to read. It doesn't mean you should get rid of. Them. Yeah, I've got one that's especially dumb, Michael. I uh, okay. It it sits next to my uh, copy of the Gallic Wars by Julius Caesar. Uh huh. Just take a guess. Oh, gosh. I don't know. What is it? It is a pack of cards from uh, Caesar's Palace in Vegas. Fair. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. That is great. Well, I know there's a lot more we could say about our libraries and about the Walter Benjamin essay, but we have run out of time to say it. So, uh Listeners, why don't you send us an email at uh, thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. We have not gotten very many emails lately. We're wondering if people are still listening. So why don't you send us an email with a picture of your library or tell us about your library or let us know that you appreciate what we do uh, or that you hate us. That's fun, too. Uh, You can also go to our Facebook group. Uh, Just type in The Christian Humanist uh, on Facebook and you'll get it. The network has a Twitter uh, feed, which is CH Radio Network. Uh, We have a website, christianhumanist.org. There's all sorts of ways to get in touch with us. Uh, David, what are we talking about next week? We are talking about a a short patristic essay called An Address to Young Men on the Right Use of Greek Literature by Basil the Great. Sounds good. Well, the Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Until next week, this is Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger.